Podcastle, episode 168, for August 2nd, 2011. Zauberschlieft, by David D. Levine. Rated PG. Hello, and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and today, I'm going back to Germany. In this week's story, I mean... Actually, about two years after Emma and I were married, we moved to Germany to work at a school in the Black Forest for a year. When we talked with the school about it, and they found out we lived in L.A., they told us, Oh, that's perfect. The Black Forest is like the Southern California of Germany. Liars. It started snowing in October, I think, and didn't let up until late April. Maybe even early May. Sounds like L.A., all right during Ragnarok. Anyway, all that said, I love so much about Germany, but most of all, I loved how storybook magical everything in the Black Forest felt. It was the longest winter I've ever experienced, but easily the most beautiful as well. There's not a lot of snow in this week's story, but I wouldn't say the weather in it's the most desirable either. I hope that won't steal any of the magic away from you all, though. We're proud to present to you Zauberschlift, by David D. Levine, originally published in the Apprentice Fantastic Anthology, edited by Russell Davis and the late, great Martin H. Greenberg. David D. Levine is the Hugo Award-winning author of Tick, Tick, Tick. He's had numerous stories published at Escape Pod and also the Drabblecast, and his works appeared in four years' best volumes. You can visit him online at bentopress.com. David told us this story was based on a job he had in college where he was a technical writer for a small software company. That was his first technical writing job and he learned the technical writers because they have to learn and understand the entire product from the user's perspective, often have a better understanding of the whole system than the programmers, who each have complete expertise in a small part of it. The story is read for us by Podcastle's own master of a hundred disguises, my buddy Wilson Fowley who's currently living in Canada, if he can be believed, and conducts a local amateur show choir in Vancouver called the Maple Leaf Singers, which you can find online at www.maple-leaf-singers.com. So remember, it can't rain all the time, and enjoy the story. Zauberschrift by David D. Levine A cruel wind tugged at Ulrich's cloak and threw rain in his face as he topped a small rise. The weather had worsened steadily as they neared the village, and the mood of his traveling companions, Agnes and Nikolaus, had soured along with it. But now, as they emerged from the trees, Ulrich's spirits rose as he recognized the ragged cluster of buildings that had been his home nearly twenty years ago. "'Welcome to Lannisdorf,' said Agnes, her expression grim." At first it seemed that little had changed. There was the mill, its wheel turning rapidly in the swollen creek. There the tiny church. There the cottages of Conrad and Georg. But as they approached, Ulrich saw how badly the village had been battered by months of constant rain and wind. Several houses had collapsed completely. From those that remained, thin ribbons of smoke rose only a short distance before being shredded by the relentless downpour. A few dispirited goats stood in the street, their ears drooping and their wool hanging soddenly. No people were visible. The feeling that lodged in Ulrich's throat was a strange compound of nostalgia, hope, and despair. 
He prayed he would be able to find some way to help. Ulrich had barely recognized Agnes when she had first appeared at his shop in Auerberg. The ample, jolly woman he had called foster-mother during the three years of his apprenticeship had become thin and stooped, her face lined and most of her teeth gone. Behind her, the young man she had introduced as Nikolaus the pastor clutched his hat to his chest. He was as thin as she, and his shaven cheeks were sunken. Ulrich was keenly aware of their worn and smelly clothes and hoped they would leave before any of his more prosperous customers saw them. "'Why have you come all this way to ask my help? I am no wizard. I never even finished my apprenticeship. I am just a dyer.' "'I know,' said Agnes. "'But Johannes always said you showed great promise.' A twinge went through Ulrich at those words, the pain of lost opportunity. He had been making excellent progress in his apprenticeship when his father and three older brothers had been taken by the bilious fever. Suddenly, unexpectedly, he had found himself in charge of his father's business. It brought him a tidy income, to be sure, but also a thousand spirit-sapping tasks that left him exhausted at the end of each day. Tell Johannes I thank him for his generous words. Alas, we cannot, said Nicholas, for he passed away twelve years ago. May God keep his soul, Ulrich said. But what of his partner Heinrich? Agnes's face was bitter. He and Johannes had a great argument, and he left Lannisdorf not long after you did. In any case, he too has passed on. Have you asked your lord for assistance? Graf Erhardt sent soldiers, but they could do nothing against the weather. This is wizard's business. Ulrich began to appreciate their predicament. And no wizard will help you? We lack the money for a master wizard, and no ordinary wizard will touch another's spell. But you were Johannes's own apprentice. Surely that gives you some special connection with his work? Perhaps. I don't know. It's been twenty years. Please, sir, said Nicholas. Our crops are drowned. Men and beasts alike are sick with hunger. Please, you must help us. Ulrich turned away and pretended to busy himself with a length of dyed cloth, so as not to meet Nicholas's miserable eyes. I'm sorry, he said. I have my business to tend to. Three journeyman dyers, constantly in need of instruction and correction, a roof that needed mending, taxes to be paid. He sighed. There is one more thing, said Agnes. Bechte, daughter of Wolfgang, lies grievously ill. Ulrich's head snapped around at that name. Bechte? She had been too young to marry when he was forced to leave. Bechte, she has the lung fever. Agnes's expression was knowing, but sympathetic. She asked specially for you. They left for Lannisdorf that very day. Agnes, the widow of Friedrich, lived with her family in a typical two-room peasant cottage with wattle and daub walls, a dirt floor, and a roof of thatched straw. By comparison with Ulrich's three-story house in Auerberg, it was little more than a box made of sticks held together with mud. It lacked windows, chairs, and chimney. Smoke from the hearth fire exited through a simple hole in the roof. Mind the wall there she said as they entered. You could put your elbow right through it if you're not careful. We keep trying to patch it up, but in this weather nothing ever dries. Ulrich dropped his traveling bag on the table. Take me to Bechte, he said. I must see her at once. Agnes's son, Michel, looked up at that, his eyes wide. Oh, sir, you may see her, but I fear she cannot see you. What do you mean? Ulrich asked, though he already knew the answer. She died this morning, sir. Bechte lay in state on the table at her cottage, 
her weeping husband and children by her side. She was as beautiful as he remembered, though her death-pale skin was blotchy from the fever that had killed her. Weakened by hunger, she had not been able to put up much of a fight against it. Ulrich felt a pang of envy for Bechte's husband, but then he realized they shared a common pain. Both of them had loved Bechte, then lost her through no fault of their own. He embraced the man and offered his sympathies. Finally, he leaned down and delicately kissed Bechte's brow. It was cold and waxy. Rest in peace, my wife that never was, he whispered. I swear to you I will find some way to help your village. He straightened and looked around at the thin and haggard faces of Bechte's family, Agnes and Nicholas. They looked back at him with expressions of hope. But what could he do to help them? He had never even finished his studies and had forgotten most of what he had learned. I will visit the wizard's house in the morning, he said at last. Perhaps I will find something there. They all joined hands, and Nikolaus led them in a prayer for salvation. Ulrich bedded down on a pestilential straw mattress with Agnes, her sister, her sister's husband, and seven or eight children. The smell, the constant fidgeting and sniffling, and the moist, oppressive heat kept him awake at first. He was used to cool linen sheets, wooden floors, and breezy windows. And yet he found the presence of those others strangely comforting. It reminded him of his apprentice days when he had slept with the wizards and their families. His duties had been small and well-defined then, though they had seemed enormous at the time. He had not known how happy he was. Ulrich snuggled against the warm, breathing bodies and passed into sleep. The wizard's cottage was well away from the rest of the village, off by itself in a stand of beach. It was abandoned and weather-beaten, but showed no signs of vandalism. People avoid this place, Agnes explained. It's known to be haunted. Indeed, Ulrich replied. Wizards rarely leave their homes or possessions unprotected. I should go in by myself first. He pushed the crumbling door aside and ducked beneath the collapsed lintel. Inside, he found dripping water, weak daylight streaming through holes in the thatched roof, and a swampy smell of mud and decay. The back half of the roof had collapsed, a heavy beam lay across the cracked hearthstone, and rotting straw lay everywhere. For a moment he just stood, taking it in, trying to reconcile this ruin with his happy memories. Johannes's writing desk had been there, Heinrich's chest of herbs and compounds there. Now there was nothing but disorder and decay. Johannes's favorite chair lay overturned in a corner. When he tried to pick it up, it fell to pieces in his hands. He flung the rotten boards away. Enough delay. There were problems to be solved here. All morning he had strained his mind, trying to piece together bits of memory. He had remembered three of Johannes's tesserae, words of command over daemons, and hoped that would be enough. He cupped his hands to his mouth and called them out, one after another. There was no reaction to the first or second, but at the third he felt a movement in the mud and rotten straw under his feet. Gingerly at first, careful of his fine clothing, then more and more enthusiastically he swept the mud away with hands and feet. Finally he grinned as the iron-bound lid of Johannes's coffer appeared. It appeared to be intact, and the third tessera had released the ward on its lock. Nicholas, Agnes!' he called. "'Come in. I think it's safe, and I need your help.' The three of them dragged the heavy coffer out of the sucking mud and onto the hearthstone. Ulrich cleaned the grime away from the hinges and hasps as well as he could, then rinsed his hand in a puddle before raising the lid. The large bound volume of spells was inside, as he'd hoped, but it was covered with mold and mildew, 
black and green tendrils engulfed the book in a wild profusion of corruption. God in heaven, Ulrich breathed. With the shape this thing is in, we're lucky the weather is no worse than it is. Demons, Conrad the Reeve cried, touching the saint's medal pinned to his doublet. They had hauled the coffer with its precious damaged contents to Agnes's cottage for a more careful inspection, and Conrad, Graf Erhardt's representative in Lannisdorf, had joined them there. His long face was very lined and hard for a man so young, and he carried himself with an authoritative swagger. Not demons, demons, Ulrich explained, remembering his own panicked reaction when Johannes had used the word for the first time. The word is Latin. It is closer in meaning to geist, spirit, than daemon, demon. Philosophers disagree over where daemons come from, even whether or not they exist before they are bound to a task, but they are not devils or angels. Only God may command those, but daemons are subject to human will. Demons or spirits, they are still evil, said Conrad. Not evil, just mindless and powerful. Johannes had been fond of comparing them to an imbecile child with the strength of a bull. When properly controlled, they are beneficial. The daemons bound by these spells gave you twenty years of exceptionally good weather. It's true, Conrad, Agnes said. Up until this year we hadn't had a crop failure since before Ulrich was an apprentice. You're too young to remember, but we used to have a bad harvest at least one year in four. But now they have turned against us, said Conrad. Not really, said Ulrich. Look. He gestured at the book open on the table before them. Spell books were never beautiful like illuminated scriptures. They consisted of nothing but line upon line of the convoluted legalistic Latin called Zauberschrift. But this spell book was truly ugly. The center of each page was still legible, but the edges were discolored and many of the letters were unreadable. You see how badly damaged the words are, said Ulrich. The daemons are still doing their best to obey these commands, but they are so garbled the results are disastrous. Agnes looked puzzled. But if the book was damaged by the rain, and the rain came from the damage to the book, which came first? Ulrich had to think about that. The mold must have come first, he said after a time. It probably started years ago, while the weather was still good. The damage to the book caused the rain, not the other way around. But something nagged at the back of his mind. Conrad's angry voice interrupted Ulrich's thoughts. Surely to control the weather is a violation of God's will. God sends the rain, Nikolaus said, but it is no violation of his will to wear a hat. Perhaps these demons have been something like a hat for the whole village. But now they are destroying it, Conrad replied, and we must destroy them. Burn the book. It's not so simple, said Ulrich. The demons will try to follow their commands even as the book burns. Ulrich recalled a demonstration Heinrich had given him. He had bound a very simple protective demon to a yew tree, then had set fire to the spell. The tree had become a twisted heap of splinters in an instant. These weather demons are very powerful. I would not want to be here if you did anything to damage this volume any further. There must be some way to dispel the demons, Nikolaus asked. Yes, but breaking a spell is an exceedingly complex spell in itself. Only a master wizard would even attempt it. So what do you propose to do? said Agnes. Clean away the mold, repair the vellum and binding, re-ink the damaged places. That should put things back the way they were and then you can store the book someplace dry. I thought you said you were not a wizard, said Conrad. Only a wizard can write a new spell, but even an apprentice should be able to repair one. All I have to do is make up some ink, cut some quills, and read and write a few words of Latin. 
I did those things every day. And I pray I can still remember how after twenty years, he added silently. There was one other thing that he did not mention, the sealing of the spell with blood and the risk of death that went with it. But he had an idea to avoid that. Very well, said Conrad, but if the weather does not improve soon, I will take matters into my own hands. Ulrich sat at Agnes's trestle table, grinding charcoal into a fine powder with a mortar and pestle he had found in the ruins of the wizard's cottage. Nearby, Agnes dipped goose feathers into a cauldron of boiling water to soften them for cutting. Ulrich's goose-bitten finger throbbed, a reminder of the eternal enmity between geese and the scribes who steal their eggs for ink and their feathers for quills. "'You said these weather demons are very powerful,' said Agnes. "'Why work such great magic in such a tiny village?' "'Many villages have a weather demon or two, "'but Johannes and Heinrich together were able to bind stronger demons "'than either of them could alone.' He paused in his grinding, lost in memory for a moment. It's a pity they didn't stay together. Do you know why Heinrich left? It was his ambition. Johannes was content to stay where he was born, and work more and better spells for the benefit of the village. Heinrich was always pushing, always reaching for more and more power. He ached to be a king's wizard. Finally it came to a huge, screaming fight, and he left the village in a foul temper. But without Johannes he was nothing. He eventually became Wizard of Malin and died there. I do not know Malin. I am not surprised. It is an even smaller town than Lannisdorf. I remember how Heinrich treated his horse, whipped the poor beast so hard I feared for her life. I wondered sometimes why Johannes put up with him. He told me once that he had tolerated Heinrich for the sake of the magic they could do together. But in the end it was Heinrich who left, and good riddance. Ulrich set down his quill and rubbed his eyes. After two weeks of scrubbing, stitching, and inking, the letters seemed to swim upon the page like a thousand tiny black fish, but this was the last of it. The sound of Agnes's family snoring in the outer room mingled with the drum of rain on the thatched roof, the hiss of wind through the cracks in the walls, the rhythmic splats from the mud puddle under the leak in the corner. The smoky flame of the tallow candle wavered in the draft. He wondered what hour of the night it might be. He turned back over the pages, looking for any remaining spots of mold or illegible words. Here and there he touched up a letter, but he knew he was only delaying the inevitable. Finally, he brought from his belt bag the fragments of the wax seal that had closed the spell book, wax mingled with wizard's blood. He melted the fragments together in the candle's flame, let the melted wax fall onto the cord that held shut the book. Then, fingers trembling, he pressed his father's signet ring into the wax. Nothing happened. The spell was sealed, and he still lived. He let out a breath he had not even known he was holding, and knelt to thank God for his success. Then he dragged his weary body off to bed. He did not even bother to undress. A short time later he was jerked from sleep by an enormous clap of thunder. He sat up, trying to shake the sleep out of his head. A long flash of lightning showed the wide eyes of Agnes and her family, huddled together in fear. The thunder followed just a moment later, seeming to smash a lid of darkness down over the scene. Between peals of thunder, Ulrich heard a tremendous rattling roar, hail pelting the roof and walls. The youngest child wailed. Another bolt of lightning showed Ulrich her terrified face and one tiny hand reaching out to grasp at Agnes's sleeve. Thunder rolled across the roof. Ulrich struggled out of the bed, groped for a candle. Then the roar of hail doubled in volume as the front door was flung open. 
A flash of lightning revealed Conrad and a dozen other villagers, their dripping faces contorted with rage and fear. Enough of wizardry, Conrad yelled. Agnes, stoke the fire. We will burn the cursed book this very night. There is no telling what might happen then, Ulrich shouted. Silence, Conrad replied. It could scarcely be worse than this. Nikolaus, bring the book. No, Ulrich yelled and dashed into the inner room. He snatched up the spell book. Lightning flared again, a long stroke that cast a net of blue-white fire across the scene. Nikolaus and Agnes blocked the door, their eyes hard. Conrad stood behind them. Water trickled down the windowless walls. No escape. Ulrich clutched the book to his chest. Then, with a growl, he lowered his head and charged, straight at the wall. The rain-sodden clay gave way, and he crashed through, feeling the sticks within the wall claw at his face and arms. He tried desperately to protect his eyes and the book at the same time. He got his head and upper body through, but then his legs met resistance, and he tumbled face first into the cold mud outside. Hail battered his head, a sharp broken stick jabbed into his thigh, and his mouth and eyes were clogged with foul, clinging mud. He struggled blindly, writhing in the ruins of the broken wall. Hard clods of clay fell onto his back and head. Then he felt hands grabbing at his feet. Panicked, he surged forward, finally winning free, all save one shoe pulled off by someone inside the house. Freezing mud squelched between the toes of the bare foot. Ulrich struggled to his feet, rubbing mud from his eyes with one hand, awkwardly juggling the heavy book with the other. He heard a confusion of voices behind him as a large section of the wall collapsed, delaying pursuit. Conrad shouted something, but his words were lost in the sounds of hail and thunder. This was clearly no natural storm. The hailstones that seemed to pound in on him from all directions were black, not white, and had the size and twisted shape of knucklebones. Lightning flared again and again, blue-white flashes mingling with greenish afterimages in his eyes. The thunder was nearly constant, and there was a weird, light-headed sensation as though he were falling, which he had experienced before in the presence of great magics. There he is! A tremendous bolt of lightning accompanied the shouted words, revealing Conrad standing in the door of Agnes's collapsing house. His finger pointed directly at Ulrich, and two villagers began to move in his direction before the light faded. Ulrich ran. His head and shoulders were battered by the black hail as he ran hunched protectively over the book, unbalanced by its weight. His bare foot slid painfully across the hailstone-littered mud, and he nearly fell, but he caught himself with one hand and kept going. Shouts and the splashes of feet in puddles sounded not far behind. Another flash of lightning revealed a fork in the path. The left fork led into the woods, the natural destination for any outlaw. He could lose himself there with ease but unless he found shelter soon, the hail would destroy the spellbook as surely as any fire. He took the right fork. Conrad and the others were right behind him. Ulrich left the path and charged through the trees. Branches whipped his face. Sticks and sharp rocks assailed his bare foot with every step, but it delayed his pursuers, and with his desperate haste he gained a little way on them. Then the ground fell away from him. Ulrich cried out in surprise as he slid down a muddy embankment and splashed into the freezing waters of the creek. He felt the book slipping from his arms as he regained his feet, and it was only with a frantic grab that he prevented it from falling into the rushing water. He heard shouts behind him. With an effort, he hoisted the book over his head, then waded into the creek. The chill water ripped at his legs, threatening to topple him over, but he pressed forward. Deeper and deeper he slogged, feeling the current tug at his leggings, then at his jacket. 
He had no idea how deep the water might be after months of rain, but he forced himself to keep going. Water splashed to his waist, his chest, his armpits, sucking all warmth from his body. He could feel nothing from his feet. His arms burned from the effort of holding the heavy book above his head. He kept going. Finally, the creek bed began to slope upward. He struggled on, feeling his body grow heavier and heavier as he rose step by step from the roaring water. At last, he reached the bank and collapsed onto a log, letting the book fall into his lap. His muscles twitched from exhaustion, and he trembled all over from fatigue and fear. Another bolt of lightning illuminated the scene. Three villagers stood, pointing on the opposite bank. Conrad was halfway across, his face set in an expression of determination and hatred. Ulrich hauled himself to his feet and stumbled up the bank, seeking higher ground, hoping to lose himself in the trees. He staggered through a black world, freezing cold and lit only by irregular flashes of lightning. Again and again he ran headlong into a tree or fell into the mud. Thunder roared like God's mocking laughter. Blood pounded in his ears even louder than the thunder. Breath rasped in his throat. Then, just as he entered a clearing at the top of a small hill, his bare foot snagged on a protruding root and he sprawled full length, the book flying from his hands. Desperately, he scrambled forward on hands and knees, found the book caught in the branches of a thorny bush. The cover was still closed. He prayed none of the pages had been damaged. He levered himself to a standing position, clutching the book to his chest. A flash of lightning revealed Conrad's lined face, not three feet from his own. Ulrich backed away from the apparition, his free arm flailing as he toppled backward into the bush. Thorns clawed at his hands and face, caught his clothing. His own weight and that of the book pinned him to the bush, whose branches hampered his arms so that he could not rise. Trapped. Conrad smiled as he stepped forward. "'You look tired, sir,' he said. "'Let me take that heavy book for you.' Ulrich struggled against the entrapping bush. Conrad reached for the book. And then a blue-white sheet of fire stretched across the sky, accompanied by an immediate smashing pressure of sound. It was all too huge for Ulrich's eyes, his ears, his brain, to comprehend, and he lost consciousness. Sometime later, he had no way of knowing how long, he was able to see and hear again, to move his limbs, to wrench himself free of the bush. The night was still dark, the lightning and hail still raged. Conrad lay unmoving on the ground, already covered with a layer of the black hailstones. His hat and shoes were missing. Much of his clothing looked burnt. Wearily, Ulrich picked up the book and began walking. After an eternity, he came to the mill. Its wheel groaned loud enough to be heard even over the ringing in his ears. He splashed through the creek and into the darkness under the mill wheel's axle. Here was a small space where he had spent many a pleasant hour with Bechte. As he ducked inside, there was a sudden movement, and a fox dashed out between his legs. The space was foul and muddy, but at last he was shielded from the pounding hail. Shivering, he wrapped himself into a ball around the book. He would wait here until daybreak, then find a better hiding place. He awoke with a start to the sight of Agnes's dripping face. Her mouth was set in a scowl, and he scrambled back away from her, cracking his head on a projecting timber. "'Agnes!' he gasped stupidly. How did you find me? His own voice sounded peculiar to him. His ears felt stuffed with straw. I grew up by this mill. 
You are not the only one who knows of this trysting place. A little wan daylight seeped through chinks in the wall, and outside the hail had been replaced by a driving rain. Thunder still rolled. I'm sorry I broke your wall. You should be, she snapped. Half the house collapsed behind you. I'm sorry, he said, and meant it. I should never have come here. Be quiet and move over. My bottom's getting soaked. He moved away from the entrance, letting Agnes pull herself fully inside. There was just room for the two of them. Agnes's eyes were white in her mud-smeared face, and Ulrich knew he must look far worse. They sat in silence for a time. Finally, he said, Are you going to tell them where I am? I don't know. Half of them want to burn the book, and God knows what would happen then, but I'm not sure what else I can do. You can help me. I know what I did wrong. I can fix it, I think, but I need some things. What kind of things? A candle, and some sealing wax, and a sharp knife. I'll see what I can do. Are you sure this won't make it even worse? I think so. I only hope I have the courage to do it. She began to back out of the hole, then paused. May I ask you one question? Anything. These demons, they control the weather. Rain, wind, sun. Why could they not keep one book dry? I... I don't know. No matter. And she left. But it did matter. It tugged and tugged at Ulrich's mind while he waited for Agnes to return. She was right. Keeping the spell itself safe from harm was a simple and standard part of any spell. How could a wizard of Johannes' abilities have forgotten it? Ulrich cast his mind back over the last two weeks of work. He had not read every page, much of the Zauberschrift was beyond him in any case, but he did remember seeing a clause for protecting the spellbook. He broke the seal. A twinge went through him at that, but the weather did not seem to worsen, and he leafed through the book in search of the passage he recalled. The light was terrible, there was barely room to turn the pages, and his vision was blurred from exhaustion, but eventually he found it. It was, indeed, as near as he could puzzle out, a clause for protecting the spellbook. But there was an addition in Heinrich's crabbed hand. You and all your brothers shall in this and in all things be obedient to Heinrich the wizard above all others. Tired though he was, Ulrich seethed. That power-besotted bastard Heinrich had given himself personal command of all the demons, hiding it here in this obscure clause, and worse, he had done it badly. He had inserted his text in the phrase that invoked the protective demon, and the insertion had mangled the language of the invocation. This error had left the spellbook completely unprotected. It was a wonder the book had lasted as long as it did. Just then, Agnes returned. I brought your materials and something to eat, but I think they may search the mill soon. You must hurry. Ulrich wolfed Agnes's bread and cheese, spitting crumbs as he explained to her what he had found. Taking the knife, he scraped away Heinrich's words, replacing black treason with a pure expanse of creamy vellum. He read and reread the remaining words, trying to reassure himself that this change would have the desired effect and no other. He thought that it would, but there was much here he did not understand, would not have understood even if his ears were not still ringing. And now came the part he had been dreading. A spell is a compact between wizard and demon, he explained to Agnes as he lit the candle with flint and tinder. It must be sealed with blood. There are errors in the spell or in the sealing that can cause injury or death. So when the time came to seal the spell before, I took the coward's way. 
I resealed it with the old wax, with the two original wizards' blood. I hoped that would seal the spell without involving me. But it didn't work. The false seal inverted the meaning of the spells, brought disastrous weather instead of good. He dripped fresh wax onto the cord, picked up the knife. This time, I use my own blood. This time, I take the risk upon my own head, and may God forgive me if I have made any mistake. He pricked the ball of his left thumb with the knife, squeezed a few drops of blood onto the hot wax. Then he dripped more wax onto the cord and took up his father's signet ring. The moment he pressed the ring into the wax, a blue light burst from the book, illuminating the dank hole like the legendary lighthouse at Pharos. With the light came a great whispering roar like the wings of ten thousand butterflies and the flavor of cinnamon and salt. "'How will we know if you have succeeded?' asked Agnes. Ulrich sat gape-mouthed for a moment. "'Did you not see the light?' "'What light? The day does seem a bit brighter, if that is what you mean.' Indeed, the light outside was stronger, and the rain seemed to be slackening. Yes, it does, he said. Though the light and sound had lasted only a moment, the taste of cinnamon and salt remained on his tongue, and a peculiar tingling suffused his limbs. I think that means I have succeeded. Mud-caked and aching, Ulrich leaned heavily on Agnes as they slogged wearily back to her half-ruined cottage. The spell-book lay in the crook of Ulrich's arm, miraculously clean, Clearly the protective demon was hard at work. The sun raised wisps of steam from the sodden ground and glinted from the puddles that lay everywhere. A hungry winter lay ahead, but there might be time for one small harvest before the snows, and there was the promise of an early daemon-driven spring. As they approached the village square they saw that a celebration was already in progress. People danced in circles, joyous at the sun's warmth on their upturned faces. Ulrich, Anna said, It has been twelve years since Lannisdorf had a wizard of its own. Will you consider staying here with us? Ulrich stopped walking. He stared at the shiny red seal on the spellbook. At last he spoke. I will consider it. If I can find a wizard to complete my instruction. If my journeymen have not destroyed the shop in my absence. And if the village will build a proper house for me, one with wood floors. I do not know if these things can be arranged she said. But we will see. Come now, let us enjoy the fine weather. Agnes took Ulrich's arm, and together they joined the celebration in the village square. And welcome back. There have been times recently when I feel a bit like Ulrich in this story. A lot of times you read fantasy stories where kids find out that they're wizards or the chosen one or whatever, and they get whisked away from their average, mundane, and sometimes terrible lives. I dug how at the beginning of this story we find the opposite has happened. Ulrich has been pulled from his dreams of becoming a wizard into a life that doesn't satisfy him, so he can pay the bills. And when people try to bring him back to the life he left behind, the life he loved, it isn't easy for him. Sometimes, most of the times, following your dreams is hard. Okay, feedback today. Let's talk about the Conan story we ran several weeks back. Robert E. Howard's Gods of the North, read by the barbaric Graham Dunlop. 
So, wow, we had some great discussion on this one over at our forum. Actually, as I'm reading this, this story has more posts than any other here at Podcastle. A lot of posters were left pretty uncomfortable by where this story went, and and I have to admit I kind of regret not talking about some of those issues a little more in depth during the episode's outro. The scene toward the end where Atali can't turn her enchantment on Conan off, which means he keeps coming at her until her father thankfully whisks her away, is pretty uncomfortable. And I think it's supposed to be. Of course, that's my own interpretation of the story. You, our listeners, had many others. Devoted135 said, See, this is why I could never get into Conan. Granted, I'm not a testosterone-laced adolescent boy, so I'm clearly at a disadvantage here. I tried really hard to remember when it was written in the historical context and all that, but in the end, I couldn't get past the objectification of the woman. Sure, you can argue that her character was asking to be objectified, but that's silly because she is a character written by a man for the purpose of objectifying her. Deflective noted that this story also includes wholesale slaughter on religious and racial grounds, and no one seems to have noticed it, much less been bothered by it. On the flip side, we have Thomas, who said, Conan by Crumb! I've been a loyal listener ever since the beginning and before, and now you finally put in a Conan story? About time! Howard got me reading for enjoyment. I discovered Conan and Howard's other writing back in the early 70s. Yes, I'm old. I consumed every book of his I could find at the time. Howard made his heroes out of steel and blood and lust, and Conan is the stick all sword and sorcery heroes are measured by. Totally awesome that you brought Howard to Podcastle. Looking forward to more of Howard's work here. Rough Week said, I just finished this one over the weekend and wanted to say I really appreciated hearing a historical and influential piece of fantasy literature at Podcastle. It's cool to hear a story from one of the greats every now and again when licensing allows, and I was glad to hear this one here. Questionable content aside, the story had some classic barbarian battling and rampaging in it, and was a fun listen. The reading narration was also excellent. Well, if you've been listening to Podcastle, you know we love to explore the boundaries of this genre. That said, we also think we have a responsibility to look back where we came from, examine those stories, and discuss why something like Conan is still so influential. So, I want to honestly thank everyone who took part of this discussion, even if we didn't share the same perspective. Talking about fantasy fiction is part of what makes this gig so cool, and hey, the discussion is still going on, so you can drop on by at forum.escapeartist.net and get in on it, or tell us what you thought of this week's story. If you like what we're doing, please visit podcastle.org and click on the donation button. Your money goes to paying our authors and keeping us running, and if you've donated $50 to us since the first of this year, or signed up as a paid subscriber, we're going to send you the Alphabet Quartet by Tim Pratt, Jen Reese, Heather Shaw, and Greg Van Eekout, as our way of saying thank you for helping us share the best in fantasy fiction with you week after week. If you can't afford to donate, no worries. Maybe blog or tweet about us, tell a friend, or write a review on iTunes. Thanks so much. Thanks especially to David Personette, our new apprentice magician, who recently sent us a donation. David's loved the Escape Artist podcast for a long time, but a home renovation project, medical bills, and life in general was overwhelming him. And don't I hear that. 
He's back above water and one of the things he wanted to do was send in some money to us. He said, You provide some of the best speculative fiction around and actually managed to make it better with interesting intros and outros. <laughs> Way to butter me up, man. The extra bonus of the A to Z quartet was really more of a reminder. So a big thank you to the whole Escape Artist team for making my commute and the world a better place. Wow, thank you, David. We honestly couldn't do this job without you. And uh, it'll be good to have another wizard around, too. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of Team Podcastle, Ann Leckie, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, I'd like to thank you for letting us all share another story with you. We'll be back next time with Elizabeth Carroll's story of unrequited love and small assassins. Until then, Podcastle would like to invite you to enjoy the fine weather. We'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. William Faulkner said, How often have I lain beneath the rain on a strange roof, thinking of home. 